This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. The largest anti-war demonstrations in American history were the protests in the fall of 1969, when more than two million people took to the streets demanding end the war in Vietnam. But did those demonstrations have any effect on President Nixon? He didn't sign a peace treaty until January 1973, more than three years later, and the last American troops didn't leave Vietnam until March 1973. But now there's a terrific new documentary on PBS American Experience. It's called The Movement and the Madman, and it presents evidence that the demonstrations did indeed change history and help in the war. It's playing on PBS stations March 28th, and then will be streaming at pbs.org and on the PBS app. For comment, we turn to Christian Appy. He's a historian of the Vietnam War era who teaches at UMass Amherst. His books include Working Class War, American Combat Soldiers in Vietnam, and most recently, American Reckoning, the Vietnam War and Our National Identity. He's director of the Ellsberg Initiative for Peace and Democracy at UMass Amherst, and he's at work on a biography of Daniel Ellsberg, and he's one of the historians whose voices we hear in the PBS documentary, The Movement and the Madman. We reached him at home today in Amherst, Mass. Chris Appy, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, John. Well, this is all about fall 1969. Remind us about the state of the war in Vietnam at that point. Americans have been fighting there for more than four years. Well, it was still as intense as ever with over 500,000 American soldiers in Vietnam, with the death toll certainly among the Vietnamese as high, if not higher than ever. But Nixon, you may remember, came into the presidency promising to find peace with honor. So vague was he about how he would bring this about. People started talking about it as a secret plan to end the war. And um, throughout 1969, uh, he did he did suggest to uh, the public that he was going to gradually withdraw American soldiers and turn more and more of the fighting over to the South Vietnamese. What the American public did not know is that at precisely that same time, he was embarking on the secret bombing of Cambodia and intensifying and spreading the bombing uh, over South Vietnam and over Laos. And let's look at the state of American politics and the war in American politics in 1969. The Democrats had a strong anti-war faction at that point, which had failed to get their candidate as the nominee in 1968, mostly because Bobby Kennedy was assassinated during the primary and Hubert Humphrey not an anti-war candidate, but narrowly was defeated by Nixon. So Nixon has narrowly won the election. What was the state of the anti-war movement when Nixon was elected? Well, it was still very lively and growing. And I, wanna, I think one of the great things that this documentary does is to demonstrate how vibrant and diverse the movement was. It, it, it included people increasingly from every part of the country, uh, all age groups, every religious denomination, every racial group. 
And it demonstrates as well, the, I think, the political and moral seriousness of the anti-war movement. And there's another side to the anti-war movement. The first anti-war demonstration was in the spring of 1965, April 65. It was organized by SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, which became the largest group on campus. But in 1969, when our story occurs, SDS split into two factions trying to compete for who was the most revolutionary. And what had been the leading anti-war organizers of students collapsed just at the moment when the war and, as you say, anti-war sentiment was reaching a peak. So it was in this context that a new organization with very different politics from this revolutionary competition within SDS arose, the Vietnam Moratorium Committee, we called them the Moratorium. Who were these people? They were activists. Many of them came from religious backgrounds, Catholic, Quaker, Jewish, and they really sought from the outset to build a broad constituency that would appeal to ordinary Americans, the mainstream. They didn't want to be uh, tainted as, you know, revolutionaries or hippies. And to that extent, they were extraordinarily uh, successful and even were able to galvanize some support within Congress, within you know, local uh, city councils and, and mayors sometimes supported them. So the moratorium group had a very different strategy from what SDS had been doing, not escalating tactics to confront the war makers, but broadening the base to include not just radical students, but all kinds of Americans. Seems like a good idea. What was Nixon's understanding of the anti-war movement and where it had been? Nixon well understood that the anti-war movement had been crucial in bringing the end to his predecessor's presidency, Lyndon Johnson. So while he publicly said that he would give paid no attention whatsoever to the demonstrations of the fall, he was in fact quite obsessed with them and had his staff monitor them, you know, 24-7 and give him basically reports every half hour as to what they were up to. So let's talk about what they were up to on the first day of the National Moratorium. That was the October demonstration, October 15th, 1969. This was the decentralized one, not a march on Washington, but in cities and towns across America. And I want to emphasize that their strategy here was not just to broaden of the activists in the movement tremendously, but to hold firm to the demand for immediate withdrawal. So their demand was clear and firm, but their effort was to be broad and inclusive. What happened on October 15th, 1969? Well, the first thing I want to emphasize is that October 15th was a Wednesday, the middle of the week. It was originally conceived of as a kind of general strike where business as usual would come to a halt while the nation turned its attention to the ongoing war and how to end it as fast as possible. The fact is that on a Wednesday, millions of people in towns and cities all over the country uh, did come together and vigils and marches and protests and the, the sort of a ritualistic reading of the names of Americans who had died in Vietnam with music and sort of all kinds of act activities. So this is 200 cities 
Two million people, October 15th, 1969. America had never seen anything quite like this before. It was so extraordinary that the press actually took seriously, maybe for the first time during the war, uh, took seriously uh, the scope of this movement and ran stories about it. Going back to your question about Nixon's reaction, that drove him crazy that uh, it was being treated so respectfully. And what was Nixon's response on November 3rd? He decided that he would speak to the nation. Originally, he was going to announce, likely to announce, major escalations of the war. This is the, the, the key backstory uh, and backbone of this documentary, which really begins by our hearing Nixon pledged during his 1968 campaign that he thought the use of nuclear weapons in Vietnam was just unnecessary and uh, too provocative. But unknown to the American public, uh, Nixon was issuing a series of threats directly to the North Vietnamese, but also via the Soviet Union, which said that if they did not make substantial concessions at the negotiating table, they being North Vietnam, the United States on November 1st would embark on a savage punishing blow, to use Kissinger's phrase for it, against uh, North Vietnam to include uh, renewed bombing of all of North Vietnam, which LBJ had uh, ended the year before, perhaps a ground invasion of North Vietnam, certainly the mining of harbors, the bombing of the dike system, which would have caused tremendous suffering and perhaps famine in the North, and most disturbingly, possibly the use of nuclear weapons, uh, principally on the rail lines connecting China to North Vietnam. So there had been a plan to escalate the war significantly that he was going to announce on November 3rd. Instead, he made a different announcement on November 3rd. Well, on November 3rd, instead of announcing the escalation of the war, he asked that patriotic Americans, the great silent majority, he called them, uh, should join with him and, and express their support for the country. So in effect, he, in that speech, turned the debate away from the merits of the war to a debate about who's a patriotic American and and who's not, really a debate over the flag. And I have to say he did that with quite a lot of success. And what the anti-war movement didn't realize, this had actually represented a change in his own policies or his own intentions. So there had been this plan called Operation Duck Hook, which involved threatening Russia and Vietnam with nuclear weapons. The problem here, of course, was the Russians and the Vietnamese would think Nixon was bluffing. So the problem for Nixon and Kissinger became how could they convince their antagonists that Nixon was not making a rational bluff? And that's where this concept of the madman, which is in the title of this documentary, the movement and the madman comes from that Nixon was a madman. Is that Daniel Ellsberg's term? Where does that come from? Nixon explained this madman theory to his aide, Bob Halderman, even before he was elected president. And it goes something like this. He said, Bob, I call it the madman theory. I want the North Vietnamese to believe 
that I would do anything to end this war, that I'm uh, crazy, and that I, uh, uh, they, they know, we can just slip the word to them, that you, you know how, how obsessed he is with communists, and we can't restrain him. Plus, he's got his hand on the nuclear button. And once they get that message, Ho Chi Minh himself will come, you know, uh, begging to uh, Paris to, to make a deal. Then came the second huge demonstration on November 15th. This was a day of protest in Washington, D.C., in San Francisco, unprecedented in American history in its size. On the mall in Washington, D.C., the most memorable moment for many people was when a quarter of a million people sang John Lennon's new song, Give Peace a Chance, led by Pete Seeger, who shouted, Nixon, are you listening? This demonstration included members of Congress, active duty military, the whole spectrum that had been organized by a, by the previous month's mobilization. One of my favorite parts was the candlelight march outside the White House the night before November 15th. Nixon looked outside the windows and saw the march. And what did he propose? He said, isn't there a way we can have some helicopters fly over these demonstrators and blow out their candles? <laughs> So November 15th was this unprecedented, huge thing. I remember after November 15th feeling that this didn't work. It didn't change the war. The war went on pretty much as before. And, and the documentary says I wasn't the only one who, who felt that way. But we have learned since then, as historians, that big changes were underway uh, in the White House. Tell us about those. Well, demonstrations of the fall did have an effect that was unknown, that it was a break on escalations that might have taken place then and there. Um, Nixon did write in his memoirs, quote, I had to face the fact that, referring to the moratorium demonstrations of the fall of 1969, that it probably destroyed the credibility of my ultimatum to Hanoi, which they had just made in Paris that same month. That seems like a pretty good source for arguing that these demonstrations did have a big effect on Nixon. We, we can't exaggerate the effect of the anti-war movement when we consider the fact that, you know, Nixon berated himself over backing down uh, in the fall and later introduced forms of escalation that he had already conceived of, of launching in 1969. So it's in the spring of 70, that he invades Cambodia. Two years later, he uh, renews in a major way the bombing of North Vietnam, which was part of that duck hook plan and the mining of the harbors. But fortunately, he never did uh, turn to nuclear weapons. To convince the American people that the war was really winding down, he was going to have to move forward on troop withdrawals. And whatever escalatory moves he made to try to prolong the war uh, were going to uh, do damage to the Vietnamese and lower the casualties of Americans. And in that sense, uh, people like Daniel Ellsberg would be quick to remind us that, you know, the war really wasn't winding down, not for the Vietnamese, not for the Laotians and not for the Cambodians. Uh, they were suffering as much or more than ever. Uh, and, and the war does continue, but it does become clear to the White House that they have to do a better job of convincing the American public that they are they're committed 
to winding it down for Americans. So your closing thoughts here about whether and how these mass protests of 1969 did change the course of the war? Well, Kissinger and Nixon really were ruthless in their determination to uh, achieve their objectives of a permanent anti-communist regime in South Vietnam, whatever the cost. Uh, and the, the records uh, that are now abundantly clear, uh, Carolyn Eisenberg's new book about Kissinger and Nixon's war policy called Fire and Rain makes clear that although they were worried about the anti-war movement and the effect it would have on them politically, they weren't worried about the cost of the lives they were taking in Southeast Asia. So it's a huge consolation to say that the anti-war movement made things less bad than they really were because they were terrible and ultimately claimed over 3 million Vietnamese lives and more in Laos and Cambodia, but it actually could have gone on longer and worse than it did had it not been for this massive, unprecedented outpouring of uh, opposition the documentary is The Movement and the Madman. It's directed by Stephen Talbot. It's playing on PBS stations March 28th, and then we'll be streaming at pbs.org and the PBS app. Chris Appy is one of the historians whose voices we hear in the film. Chris, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.